We are so blessed in this church with the music that we have with our choir back here. And the good news is that this Sunday is drier than last Sunday. Last Sunday, we had water running down in the choir loft. You can kind of see that's still to be repaired. We had a new roof put on, so it's still under warranty. But it was interesting. They said that during the audio recording of the sermon that was posted online, you can hear the sound effects as if there was a water fountain going. When the service was over, Charlie Brown, one of our youth ministers, and a couple of you, Andrew, and some others, we took all the chairs out of the choir loft and had like five kiddie pools. Thank God for youth programs and children's programs that have the necessary tools that are needed. We had kiddie pools because trash cans were not big enough to catch all the water that was coming in. Uh, We had a parade of baptisms. If you wanted, you just walk through. (laughs) But what a privilege it is to be able to join together and worship God today. Our scripture this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll begin at verse 6 where Peter writes. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist Him, steadfast in your faith. For you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Mighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and for the privilege of studying it together. And now as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yesterday I had the privilege of doing yet another wedding for a couple in our church. It was at a venue and it was a great opportunity to be there. I love doing weddings with people in the, in the congregation because during the premarital work and, and everything, you kind of bond, you get to know them better, and, and then you get to share in this, this one of the most sacred moments in their lives. The bride, who was a member of this congregation, loved Disney. And so as a result... Some of the music that was going on prior to the ceremony, the music that she walked in on, some of the music during the reception were the Disney tunes, the Disney music. Oh, some of those songs are just absolutely awesome. And, and, and I'll confess to you, when my kids were little, I loved watching the Disney movies. Children give you an excuse to be able to do some of the things that you want to do. I mean, it, you know, it was when they were little, we would, we would put in Beauty and the Beast, Fox and the Hound, whatever it might be, and, and we would watch the shows. And now that my kids are grown and they moved out of the house, I mean, it's kind of hard to explain why if somebody comes in, you're sitting there watching Bambi. 
But there's something about those shows. There's something about the music. And when my kids were little and we went to Disney, you, you would you'd watch their faces light up and they go, oh, there's Mickey Mouse. Oh, there's Belle. There's Aladdin. There's Cinderella and different characters. They just, just absolutely loved it. But one of the things that Disney does sometimes at the end of a movie is that you'll see this phrase come up that says, and they lived happily ever after. I guess that's part of what makes it a fairy tale. And they lived happily ever after. Because don't, don't you wish that was the case? You know, we experience something in our lives, but from this point on, it's absolutely going to be marvelous. From this point on, there'll never be another problem. From this point on, everything's going to be absolutely perfect. And sometimes we think when we become Christians that that's what's going to happen as well. That, that once you become a Christian, not another problem. You will not have another issue. You accept Jesus Christ, things are going to be rosy from this point on. But just remember, under every rose, there are some thorns. There's some challenging times. I mean, we, we have this idea sometimes that once we're Christian, there'll never be another marriage problem. Not true. Or once I accept Jesus Christ, there will, there will be no problems whatsoever raising our children. We have teenagers, but because we're Christians, this will be a piece of cake. Good luck with that. There will be no financial issues whatsoever. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, it's, it's not always the case. Sometimes we wish that, that life would be happily ever after, but that's not the reality. There are times in our lives that are mountaintop experiences, wonderful experiences that we have in our world and in our lives, but there are also times that, that we all go through valleys, that we all go through challenging times, we all go through difficult times. The difference now that we're Christian is, is that that we have a God who seeks to get us through it. A God who so loves us and who cares for us that, that God will, will get us through these challenging times. Peter is writing to the church, and as some of you who are taking the Bible study on Revelation that we're doing on Wednesday nights know that, that the Roman Empire is, is now ruling all of the region, including Israel, and and, and the people here are, they're persecuted. I mean, there, there are so many other gods that are being worshipped and, and Caesar has to be worshipped and people are supposed to cry out, Caesar is Lord and, and the Christian church didn't want to do that and as a result, they would, they would end up being persecuted. It was not easy being a Christian in such a non-Christian world. Which is something I think we're going to begin to experience more and more in our lives. But the challenge then that Peter's writing is hold fast, be strong, trust God. God will get you through this. So be alert, be disciplined, pay attention. But I love the way Peter writes. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that he may exalt you. He may lift you up. He may pick you up in due time. Cast your anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. He cares for you. He loves you. He adores you. This powerful God with His powerful hand loves and cares for you. So humble yourselves. 
Humble yourselves before God. Humbling ourselves, that's not always the easiest thing that we, we can do. I mean, sometimes it's, it's hard for us to admit when we need something. It's hard for us to admit when, when we just can't figure it out or when we can't handle it or we can't deal with something in our life. It's a challenge. Ben Franklin wrote in his autobiography that here's a list of things as I grow up and as I mature that I really want to work on. Here's some virtues that I really want to work on. Here's some of my character that I really want to work on. And the last one on his list was humility. And beside it he wrote, imitate Jesus and Socrates. But it was interesting. Imitate I want to work on my humility, so therefore imitate Jesus. So often we try to handle things on our own, but if we imitate Jesus, what did he do when life got hard? What did he do when things were a little overwhelming? We would watch as Jesus would slide away to a quiet place to spend time alone with his God to get the strength and the courage to face what was ahead. Cast your anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Anxiety, it's an issue that we deal with today. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, all of us, which we agree with, all of us have anxiety on occasion. There's some point in our lives where we feel anxious about things, but 19 to 20% of us, basically one in five of us, will experience an anxiety disorder each year. Each year, one out of five people experience an anxiety disorder. Now what that means is that our anxiety got to the point that we couldn't function well at work or we couldn't function well in our homes we couldn't function well at school yes school why because children and youth have incredible anxiety today it's absolutely amazing to see the pressure on children and youth today i mean we the the difference in, in some of the large schools and great schools that we have between the valedictorian and number 50 is just a small percentage. No matter how large the school is, if you're going to make the ball team, there are still only five players on the basketball court at a time. What are the odds? I get to be one of those five. That pressure to get to that point is incredible. The size of the football team is the same. They don't go, well, since there's more of y'all, you can put more players on the field. Now that the pressure is unreal. Our youth experience. So this anxiety disorder, we struggle with school, home, work, play, whatever it might be. One in five of us. And, and the question is, is how are we going to deal then when we've got this kind of pressure, this kind of weight, this kind of anxiety that we're carrying in our lives? How do we deal with it? I was at an event not too long ago when somebody was you know, there to, was, to speak in the event. And, and, and so they had in their hand a glass that had some alcohol in it. And so they got kind of tied up on what they were trying to do. And they said, um, hold on a second. And, and they took a drink. And, and then somebody else yelled out, liquid courage. Wow, is that where we get it? Is that how we get courage? I mean, how do we deal with the anxieties, the stress, the pressures that, that we have in our world today? Peter says, cast your anxiety on him. Why? This mighty hand of God that will be able to lift you up because he cares for you. You have a God who cares for you. And Jesus taught us that, that once we become Christians, it's not that we're going to be removed from the pressures. It's, and we're not going to be taken away from the pressures of our world, but rather God will get us through it. It's, it's one of the reasons why in the prayer that you prayed just a few minutes ago when we did the Lord's Prayer, 
That in Matthew 6, verse 13, when Jesus teaches us to pray, He goes, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Get us through it somehow. I love the prayer in John 17 when Jesus is praying for the disciples and He's praying for the church. Do you hear what Jesus prays in that prayer? Verse 15, He goes, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but I'm asking you protect them from the evil one. In other words, I'm not asking that you try to to help them escape reality. I'm asking you to help them get through it. I'm not trying to get you to get them away from difficult times, but get them through the difficult times. The challenge is, how do we deal with that? Jesus' prayer was, God, you lean on us. So Peter writes, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God so that he can lift you up. Cast your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you so we do our part what was it well peter says discipline yourselves stay alert the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour his greatest tool is to convince you that he's not doing that resist him be steadfast in your faith and remember you're not alone there are others that are going through exactly what you're going through So many times we think we're the only ones dealing with whatever it is we're dealing with. We look around at other people and we go, wow, they just seem to have it all together. They seem to have it all together. They seem, everybody seems to have it all together but us. For some reason, I don't have it all together. And and therefore that creates all this pressure. What you don't realize is the other people are looking around at you and others going, they seem to have it all together. Everybody seems to have it all together. Why is it that I'm the one dealing with it? Peter goes, you need to know. You're not the only ones. You're not the only ones dealing with it. And what's God's part? I love the way Peter says that God himself. God's not going to subcontract it out, but God himself will restore you, support you. God himself will strengthen you. God himself will establish you. That Greek word for restore is actually a Greek word that's used in the sense of like if you've broken a bone, like you've broken your leg or you broke your arm, it's being reset. It's restored. It's being reset. Mark also uses that same Greek word when he talks about the disciples were mending their nets, that that there was a rip in the net. The net is no longer able to function properly, but the disciples mend it back together. Uses the same word here. It's restored. That God knits us back together wherever there's brokenness in our lives, wherever there's a hole in our lives, where there's something missing in our lives, whatever it might be, God Himself will help knit us back together. Why? Because He cares for you. The challenging part for us, I think, is to acknowledge our pain and to acknowledge our need and to acknowledge our fears and to acknowledge our helplessness. We tend to want to suffer alone. Peter goes, you're not alone. Today, in our church, we've been doing some addiction awareness seminars. We had one at 9.30. There's one going on right now. Uh, or actually, two going on right now. One was started at 11, the other one around 11.15. And if you didn't get a chance to, to be part of those, we'll be doing more of those kind of things too. Because one of the things that Peter's sharing is you're not alone. And addiction is one of those things that does not discriminate. Addiction issues, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter whether you're educated or whether you're uneducated. We all deal with it somehow. I mean, it's it's in all of our lives. I remember when I was growing up, I I grew up so far out in the country 
in the middle of nowhere that we always thought, well, those are the issues that occur, you know, like on the wrong side of town or in the wrong neighborhoods or in the rough sections or whatever. You learn very quickly as you get a little older, oh, that is not the truth. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter what your race might be. It doesn't matter how educated you might be. And you may think, I live in a gated community. Well, good news for you. This stuff somehow gets in there too. It's everywhere. I remember when I was serving one of my previous churches, there were two primary high schools in the community. And one of them was in a very affluent community and the other one was in a nice community, but it wasn't nearly as affluent. And the joke was, you know, the difference between this school and this school, the quality of the drugs. It wasn't that one had it, one different didn't. It was just what is the difference between them? So it's everywhere. It's in all of our families, all of our lives. I will share with you, we know, studies have shown that, that a lot of the issue can be genetic. Now, a lot of it is environmental and behavioral, but there's some of it that's genetic. I will tell you, I am scared to death of alcohol, which is why I don't drink. Uh, now, let me go ahead and confess right up front. Jesus turned the water to wine. Not Welch's. I just want to be perfectly clear so that we're together on this because I sometimes heard when I was a kid, but it really wasn't fermented because we got to make Jesus okay with this. Well, Jesus turned it to wine. The scriptures talk about the issue of drunkenness, not bloatedness. He doesn't say, beware of drinking too much. You'll get bloated. Then your clothes won't fit right. You won't feel good. You know, you'll be sleepy all afternoon. Beware of bloatedness. That's drunkenness. So I want us to be clear what was going on there. And it was not the issue that if somebody has a drink, that's the sin. The Bible doesn't say drinking is the sin. It says drunkenness is the sin. So I want to be clear before I say what I'm about to say. I'm terrified of it because of my family. I don't drink, not because I think it's illegal scripturally. I think it's the wrong thing for me. Why? Because on both sides of my family, I had uncles that I was never around day or night, that, that they were not under the influence. Now, when I was a kid, I just thought their breath smelled different than everybody else's. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. When I got older, we began to figure it out and began to hear some of the stories. And you can't ride with that uncle. You don't ever get in a car with that uncle. Why? Well, because they were seldom sober. And it began to be, it was, it was a real problem on both my father's side and my mother's side. And, and my understanding is that one of my most talented uncles that, that I never met, but, but he was the musician that like Rob can just pick up and play about anything and do whatever. He, he was that kind of guy, but killed in a car accident because he didn't know where he was and what he was doing. It was so tragic. And then my grandfather on my dad's side, well, I've heard the stories. My dad talked about when he was growing up, when his father would be drinking, he was one of the mean drunks. You know how people are different. Some are silly, some are sleepy, some are goofy, and some are mean. And his dad was mean. And the kids would be beaten. And grandma would be beaten. 
And I remember one time when somebody said something about the good old days. My dad looked at me and he goes, you know, people can talk about desiring the good old days. I don't ever want to go back there. They were not good old days for him. I asked him one time, I said, well, dad, when he would beat you guys, what did he use? I'm thinking, was it a belt? Was it a hickory? I mean, what, what was it that he used? And, and he goes, his fist, son. His fist. So, so my dad, one of the reasons we didn't have it in our house is my dad was determined my, that his kids would not grow up in the same environment in which he grew up. And I realized that with some of this being genetic, I, I may be wrong and I don't know how you test for it or whatever and I don't really need to, but I'm just convinced that, that I may be that guy. I may be that guy that can't handle it. And I'm scared to death that it could cost me my family. It could cost me my ministry. It could cost me my life. So since I've never had it, I don't know what I'm missing. But I stay away with it. The other reason I do is because, well, you're about to hear a lot of people in our congregation today struggle with alcohol dependence. And I've made a commitment. When we go to the wedding reception, when we go to the party, when we go to the event, I'll have a sweet tea with you. You won't be the only one. But that's me. Yes, on uh, Friday, we did a funeral for a great man in this church. His name was Richard Wright. He used to sit right there on the second row, he and his wife. Richard was one of those you know, that, that I loved when I was preaching and when the music was playing, knowing that he was here because I knew at least one person's listening. Because he sat on the second row, I think, so he could lean on the first row. Because you might remember, if, you know, when, if he wasn't standing up singing, he's leaning over the first row. I mean, he, he was up, like, I'm com- with the choir, I'm, I'm coming up there. I'm, I mean, it's like he's coming over. And, and he would lean up during the sermon, just one of the greatest guys. And I had the privilege, just a couple years ago, it, his family invited me to be a part of a big event in his life. He didn't know I was going to be there. But it was to attend an AA meeting where he was going to be. I came a little bit late so that I could sneak in the back. They had it all planned at the church where they were meeting. I was to come late. There was somebody going to be watching for me. They were going to sneak me in, put me on the back row so that he wouldn't see me. And when the time came, I had the privilege of presenting to him his 50-year chip. 50 years. He shared with me his life story. He shared with me numerous times about how his life just about ended. His marriage was just about over. And finally, when everything was falling apart, they called a pastor by the name of Marion Workman, who was their pastor at the time, who happened then to be the pastor that was my district superintendent when I was being called into the ministry. And and he was the guy that led me through my candidacy process and appointed me to my first church and gave me a set of books that are still in my office today. We had that guy in common, and that created a link. But that pastor came over and goes, look, I can't help you because this is beyond me, but I know people who can. Can I call them? And that's when he got into recovery. And it changed his life and changed so many people's lives because that day at that 50-year program, they asked the question and said, if you have somehow been touched by Richard Wright, if he somehow, or Dick Wright, some people call him, and if you have been touched by this man, if he's been your sponsor, your mentor, helped you, coached you, helped you in some way, would you please stand? The whole place stood up. And when we did his reception, 
Friday, right after the funeral, there were people from churches I served two, three times back in my ministry that at some point, somehow, Richard Wright's life crossed their life and a life was changed. Amazing. But one of the things he taught was you can't handle this by yourself. You need God and you need each other. You need God and you need others. It was funny when we were sitting here listening. I was sitting over there where Meredith is beside another pastor when some different people that were part of his life came up here and were sharing stories at his service. And the other pastor leaned over to me when they were talking about how they helped each other. They were there for each other. Middle of the night, middle of the day, whatever they needed, they were there. And the other pastor leaned over to me and went, huh, sounds like what the church is supposed to be. That community where we need each other and we lean on each other. But the difference is we have to admit the need. So I want to share some numbers with you. And I know numbers vary depending on where the survey is coming from and how the questions ask. But this is from the National Council on Alcohol and Drug Dependence. It says that one in every 12 adults suffer from alcohol abuse or dependence. That's 8.3% of us. And I say us because you need to know our numbers are no different than the rest of the world's numbers. So 8.3%. That meant that in that today, roughly, on our campus today, that would mean around 100 people that were on our campus today are dealing with alcohol abuse or dependence. And several million more, they go on to say, engage in risky binge drinking patterns that can lead to alcohol problems. Catch this. More than half of all adults have a family history of alcohol or problem drinking. That's 50%. That's half of us. More than 7 million children live in a household where at least one parent is dependent on or has abused alcohol. And youth ministers, youth counselors, parents, listen up. By age 15, 50% of youth have had at least one drink. By the time they're 15, now, if you think, not my kids, half of you are going to be wrong. We have to be aware of what's happening. And what happens in our homes when we leave and assume they would never. Have the conversations. You need to have the conversations. It's critical. I remember... When my son finished his basic training and was about to be stationed in Germany, I went, great, Germany. So we sat down one day and had some conversations. I've shared with you other conversations, but we had a conversation one day and, and I just told him, I said, I'm not going to pretend when you go to Germany with the United States Army that you're going to be drinking sweet tea. Folks, we have to be realistic. We have to be honest. Even preachers have to be honest. So I said, there is a difference in you having one and you needing one. The moment you need one, you call me. There's a difference in having one 
and needing one. And the moment you need one, you call me. You've got to have the conversations. Parenting isn't friendships. It's guidance. And according to the National Survey of Drug Use and Health, an estimated 20 million Americans age 12 and older, we have to go back to 12, age 12 and older have used an illegal drug in the last 30 days. In the last month. That's 8% of us in the last month have used an illicit drug. Now that includes marijuana, cocaine, crack, heroin, hallucinogens, inhalants, prescription drugs without a prescription. 8% in the last month. We have to be real. You see, life is not always easy, but what Peter says here is, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God and cast your anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for you and He Himself can restore you. If you talk to people in the AA program, like Richard Wright, one of my former pastors who's a mentor and now a dear friend of mine who, who came out of Vietnam as a Green Beret, and he medicated Vietnam with alcohol, which cost him his ministry for a while, but then he became a certified drug and alcohol addictions therapist, re-entered the ministry and changed so many lives. But they'll share with you in the 12-step program. Here are the first three steps. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Got to bet you got the problem. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore our sanity. And made the decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. See, my view is if we're in the church and we're Christians, we're all in a recovery program. That's what the church is. We're all broken and seeking God to lead us to the fullness that God created us to be. At the funeral, we were asked, can we pray the serenity prayer? Because a lot of the people that were going to be there are used to praying that. And the serenity prayer goes like this. It says, God... Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. But that prayer goes on. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did, meaning Jesus, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. That I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Leaning on our God. Why? Because he cares for you. I, I find it interesting that there are some things that we immediately lean to others for help. And there are other things that we won't talk about. I mean, how many of us, if we find out and get the diagnosis that we have cancer, how many of us go, I can handle this, I got this, I, I can, I don't want, I don't, I got this, I got it, I got it, I'm good, I can do this, I don't need any help, I don't need any advice, I don't need anybody, I don't need a doctor, I don't need a, pro I'm good, I got it. Very few of us, we go, call the doctor. 
whatever other issue that we want help we want guidance or how many of us when we're having that amazing chest pain and we know that we're having a heart attack go wait 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 i got this i got it got it how many of us are, are willing to go don't i'm good i don't need a doctor i don't need cpr I don't need surgery. I don't need him. I got this. None of us. None of us are going to sit there. Got it. Got it. And yet, with anxiety, depression, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, whatever it might be, we're going, got this. I got it. I got it. I'm good. I'm good. When God puts around us amazing Christian doctors, nurses, medical technology, counselors, therapists, friends, groups, programs, whatever it might take. Peter said, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And after you suffer a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, support you, strengthen you, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. We need each other. And we have to acknowledge the problems out there are just like the problems in here. And the problems in here are the same as the problems out there. The challenge is not that we live happily ever after, but that we have a God who will get us through. So that as Jesus said, I came to give you life, but not just life, abundant life. We have people that you can talk to if you need help, and many of us do according to the numbers, you have a guide, you have a team, you have one another. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.